Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. It's getting pretty quiet in here. Um, I would like to offer a couple of reflections and lay some ground um, for a theme that I think I'd like to explore a little bit this retreat and, and the, uh, this retreat, this talk, and a little bit in the next talk. And the theme is uh, to think about and consider the Buddha as a virtuoso. The Buddha as a virtuoso. Um, and therefore, by implication, and in case it's not too much of a stretch for you, yourself as practitioner as a virtuoso, or heading that way. <laughs> okay? And if you've already gone, oh my God, I'm so not a virtuoso, I don't even know where the keys are of this instrument that I'm playing, don't worry, there's room for the whole progression from picking up the instrument, deciding we even want to play, seeing if we're even willing to play, do the practice, get the skill, learn the scales, the chords, the notes, the tunes, to eventually a kind of freedom with the instrument um, that I believe we could say that the Buddha has, or a Buddha has, or you as potential Buddha, or maybe even already Buddha, for all I know, has. So the definition of a virtuoso, um, then I, when I looked it up, see if I can find it. Right, a person highly skilled. Right, you're already laughing. <laughs> Don't worry. So I want to say from the outset, this in, in practice, there's, there's two aspects. There's the aspect, a, an aspect which we could call realization, which is utterly nothing to do with time or development or um, that can be known here and now. There are skills that support that and openings that allow that to make that more possible, but that it doesn't belong to the realm of development or time. And there is clearly a development that happens in time. Um, as well. There is clearly a development in time. So a person highly skilled, if you're already excluding yourself and want to leave already, I invite you back because part of virtuosity, part of skill, also for a Buddha, is to be able to handle all of the um, self-images all of the Maras, if you know the, the metaphor in the tradition, all of the way Mara comes and visits. And the way Mara comes and visits is any idea your mind tells you about who you are, as one of my teachers says, is Mara, delusion. So virtuosity, skill with the instrument, is to also be able to recognize those self-images that come of less than, more than, can't do this, never will get there, I'm already there, even that one. Mara. Part of virtuosity of where the Buddha has gotten to 
is to be really fluent really fluent with the instrument with the music with the kinds of tunes that come in and the kinds of tunes that want to be played for his benefit and for the benefit of the whole for the benefit of all beings <laughs> Sorry, I didn't get far into the description today. A person highly skilled, I just want to make sure I didn't lose you along the way, um, in music or another artistic pursuit. Synonyms, wait for this one, see if you cringe and disappear off the map, because you mustn't. Genius. Genius. Expert, master, maestro. Genius. Just breathe with the word. What happens? What the prospect, because I'm presenting this as a possible way of thinking about the developmental aspect of practice. Genius. To become genius with the instrument. First I'll talk about the instrument and then the genius. And the genius. So what is the instrument here? The instrument is all of what appears as you sitting in your location. And what is that? What is that? The, how do you think about this thing sitting in your location? Okay, so we could agree perhaps that it, it includes your body. That your body is part of the instrument of knowing, practice and virtuosity come when our immediate experience is known, consciousness. We know where we are, not who we are, we know where we are, we know how we are, we know what's here. Body, mindfulness of body, basic scales and arpeggios, we could say, in the teachings of the Buddha, mindfulness of body, we get fluent with knowing body as body, as minute sensations, as sense of the whole body breathing, we get fluent in that territory. We learn those melodies of how to play that. Our instrument includes our heart, our heart. And by heart here, I'm including all the way, including the chest center here. I'm including all the way from where our heart feels utterly unresponsive to ourself or the world. Where it feels closed down, we don't even know there's a heart there, there's just nothing. It's a little bit like the instrument of the heart, in that case would be like, one of the violins I have, it, one, I have one violin, a, vi <laughs> a violin I have in my cupboard, it's been there 15 years, the last lesson I had was 20 years ago, the strings, two of the strings are missing, it's dusty, it's out of tune, if any music is resonating nearby, there's nothing there, it's locked in this funny old box, and I'm wondering what to do with it. Do you ever feel like that about yourself, right? Here I am, this instrument, part of the kit, part of the potential instrument, part of the orchestra, doesn't feel available for some of us. Feels like it's locked away in a dusty old box and what am I gonna do with this? 
right from that perception of heart through to where the emotional life opens up for us, right, starts to get more color, more texture, maybe very difficult things, some of them, very difficult, on the way to healing the heart. (coughs) And I would even include for the Buddha difficult things. He would have to feel the world. To be able to be a virtuoso, his instrument is available to be played with skill. He will feel his strings resonating with the beauty and the horror of the world. But right through from the emotional life opening up, getting skill with that, learning that, right through, I would say, to where the heart is also known as an organ of knowing, a different kind of knowing than we typically know from the head, a kind of knowing that is in relationship with things, in relationship with parts of ourself, in relationship with each other, where that can open out as it clarifies to be able to see and know the divinity as beloved otherness in the particular way it shows up as you and you and you and the tree and the grass and the clouds and the bushes. This is part of our instrument. Our head, this magnificent, magnificent bright light sometimes on the top at the top of the tower, right through from the, uh, sometimes in the tradition you you hear the word um, Vajji Sankara. Sankara is karmic patterning. Vajji is articulation, that which can articulate. And in this case, that includes conceptual knowing and all the beauty of that um, and all the trickiness with that, if it thinks it's the whole knowing. Right? The conceptual knowing through to the other kinds of knowing of the head center, clear, bright, kind of basic knowing of direct kinds of contact, all the way through to perceptions of being able to see right through phenomena and beyond. This instrument includes our, what else does it include? We could, we could draw a big chart here. We could have a big piece of paper up and you say, it includes this and this and this and this. It includes everything that's ever happened to you. All the ways you've handled experience. It includes all the ways you've seen the world, known the world, perceived the world. It's such a rich instrument such a rich instrument and sometimes it doesn't feel that way does it sometimes we feel like we're locked i'll speak for myself sometimes it has been that i would feel locked in a small range of that instrument not able to have any music happen typical example when i was thinking about it earlier when our range is shut down our sense of the sacred is not available 
We have no valuing in any one moment of this gift of possibility. <coughs> Someone presses our button. When I first came to practice, I didn't know what people meant when they said that. I was very literal. <laughs> I hadn't, I did, somehow didn't know that expression. So if you're either like me or English is not your first language and you don't know that, you know, you get triggered, basically. Someone presses your buttons. <coughs> it's usually someone, isn't it? Sometimes we press our own buttons. We kind of on a loop where we keep pressing our own button. Someone presses your, your button and you have a really limited range of response. Right? That's the kind of thing I mean. It's very practical. This metaphor, virtuosity, is not esoteric. We know what it's like when the range of creative response is very limited or very predictable. It might look a bit more interesting, but it's a bit predictable. First example, someone presses my button and my instrument is either that violin that I've got at home, or if we're a little bit more fiery and we don't just kind of retreat back into the box, it might be like those party blowers. You know those little things, they've got a plastic thing and they go, with a feather on the end. It's like we kind of push back. That's our instrument. You say this to me and you get one of these. Right? Not much virtuosity yet. We've got an instrument. But there's not, much virtu there's not much virtuosity around. There's not too many things. Well, I'd who, what can you do with a party blower? Not so many things. I want to read... Um, so, oh, yes, yeah, so our, our instrument includes our, con our conceptions and our perceptions of what the instrument is. Because it's very easy just to think, okay, so it's my body and it's my heart and it's my mind. Okay, right, I'll get down to work. But how are we thinking about that body, that heart and that mind? Because we will be thinking about what it is. Even if that thinking isn't um, to the foreground of our mind and we're not necessarily clear what it is we're thinking about this instrument. So I'm going to read this little piece from a book called The Living Universe, and it's, it's simple, versions of, um, simple versions of quantum perceptions, quantum understandings, for people like me. I really like this one. They explain it very well. So how about this? And I'd like you to think, think about it, but also we'll try it on in a little while as well, because this pertains to how you are with your mindfulness of body breathing is not abstract. These kinds of ideas, and we'll have our own ones, will inform then how we come to the cushion and attend to our metta, to our body breathing. It's called, We Are Giants. When we gaze at the enormity of the universe, with its billions of swirling galaxies, it seems natural to conclude that we are very small. When we see a universe that extends trillions upon trillions of kilometers, it is reasonable to think we are insignificant in the cosmic scale of things. However, the common sense view of ourselves is radically mistaken. We are not small creatures. In the overall scale of the universe, we are giants. 
I'm going to read a bit more, what they mean. Just hear how you're hearing it. Anybody hearing it as, oh my God, I'm just getting humble. I'm finally stopped being grandiose. I don't need to know that I'm a giant. Or, oh, say more. Or, it's dangerous for humans to think they're giants. We already think too much of ourselves. But listen on. Imagine you have a ruler. I'd like you to imagine one of those 30 centimeter wooden or plastic rulers that you went to primary school with. 12 inches, if you're as old as me. Right, one of these. If imagine a ruler um, that measures from the largest scale of the known universe to the smallest. At the largest scale, we see hundreds of billions of galaxies, each containing billions of stars like our sun. That's the full extent of that vast range. At the smallest, at the bottom of the ruler, we travel deep within the core of an atom to the world of quarks, and then farther to the foundations of what, and what is called Planck distance. If we were to place humans on that ruler, everybody, do you know where we would be? Hannah Smith. <laughs> do you know where we would be? If we were to place humans on that ruler, we would fall roughly in the middle zone. Actually, we are a bit on the larger side, on the larger scale. And there's a drawing here. The stunning insight, therefore, from very modern science is there is more smallness within us than there is bigness beyond us. Check out your instrument. <laughs> there is more smallness within us than there is bigness beyond us. So okay, the head might like it or not like it or try and get around it. It's one of those things that's hard to get around, wrap your arms around. Let the, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea, it's an interesting one for most of us because it's not how we're conditioned to think about this instrument. Take it on, try it on. You don't have to make it an absolute truth. But see how this view might affect the way you attend to the pain in your knee after 30 minutes of sitting. How you attend to your breathing body and your conception, your subtle ideas about what it is that's breathing and what is actually sitting here. How might you walk into the meditation hall and take your seat if you really knew that there is more smallness within you than there is bigness beyond you? What does that do to the heart? What does it do to your articulating mind right now? What does it do to your perception, your way of thinking, seeing, the way of relating to this? This that was born from a mother.
this so that we'll die and go back to the Great Mother if she hasn't already gone back in practice we can go back while we're still here we can know ourselves as Earth of Earth belonging to sacred Earth There's lots that could be said about this instrument. Because if we take this metaphor of practice, potential virtuosity, at least getting some skill to play a few tunes, beyond the party blower or the dusty violin, not that that's all you are, but you know those moments, <laughs> you know the party blower moment. Even in, right here at Gaia House, <laughs> have you ever walked around the house? Maybe you're not aversive, it might be more of an aversive type of thing to do, walk around the house and you've had enough. <laughs> Hope the other one can kind of hear. Or really shut down in that dusty violin case. Even those, you know, the locks on those violin cases, they even get all like jammed up and rusty. And <coughs> I know you're not binary like that. You already have skill and virtuosity, but we, the, the vision is to be a Buddha. I remember when I was first practicing in India um, and I was w within in a Tibetan tradition just kind of on the edges of it a little bit was, there was I, yes won't go at that won't go into that it was beautiful actually but I remember this young woman um, Western woman who was an, who had ordained as a nun in within the Tibetan tradition she was very bright and enthusiastic lovely woman and she said she sat at the front she was teaching us some meditation and she said something like Yes, I want to be a Buddha. And she said, kind of um, unashamedly, from my perspective at the time, unashamedly ambitious. Almost like, how dare someone want to be a Buddha? You know, that's too ambitious. Spiritual life isn't about ambition. Ambition is bad. Look where ambition has got the world. Yes, but maybe there's also something really beautiful. Maybe ambition in its most negative ways that we've seen it in the world, and we do, and we continue to do in ourselves and in the wider collectives and bigger fields. Maybe the distortion is actually also reflecting something where we do aspire to be able to use the gift of this instrument in a way that serves what is sacred and that what is known to be sacred includes everything.
Virtuosity, you can hear and maybe some of you know, has, shares roots with virtue, uh, same word. Um, moral excellence, moral <coughs> ethical consideration. also shares uh, roots with a word vertu from old French which has to do with force and fortitude, strength, kind of moral force and character. Has shares roots, I think, I, I'm guessing this piece I don't know for sure, but you know with our um, uh, language in the, the tradition of virya, of energy, I think it has actually the same roots of um, uh, energy, like virile that we have of this kind of energetic um, fortitude, force. I want to bring back genius for a moment because I think one of the ways, a little bit like with ambition, one of the ways genius has gotten um, rarefied to belonging to a particular few creative individuals or whatever it might be, um, may we may need to restore that word also to our practice domain. The genius doesn't mean you become some, like someone else. Absolutely not. God forbid. God forbid our world needs our diversity. Nature thrives with diversity in all its realms, including in the diversity of souls. We're not trying to shape ourselves to be someone else. Have you ever tried that? in practice, because we do admire where we see genius or we see beauty of practice or fruition of practice, we see it. There was one teacher who would come here regularly, I really loved her, um, I still do actually, really loved her and I wanted to be like her. She was my idea of what would happen if I practiced more. She fulfilled my ideal image, she wasn't trying to, of, 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 of divinity. The more I practiced, the less like her I became. <laughs> I had to break out of that. My mum even came to visit us like 25 years ago at the old Gaia house and met this woman. She goes, oh, she's lovely. She's very close to God, my mum said. Um, so there's a particular kind of perception of divinity, this, this way we could feel this, um, which in my mum's language was close to God the way she thought about that. I became less like her, less pleasing to my mother. <laughs> the range of close to God might have to extend, you know, extend from our bright light, not that this woman had many, many qualities, but the bright light, etheric um, purity to include our earthy, raunchy, fleshy, juicy, to include our creative, our forceful, our strong, our boundaried, our capacity to stand up and say no, and our capacity to stand up and say yes. <laughs> That's harder for some of us. Genius, if any of you are wondering and thinking, oh, that means you have to be smart, apparently the where the word genius got made parallel with intellectual and mental brilliance wasn't till the 1640s. Before that, genius, maybe even 
maybe you know, but maybe you can start to, to imagine into where that word and what its sacred roots are. It got limited to the mental genius, which is one kind of genius and can be beautiful. Um, at around the same time, if you think of the 1640s, where we're in the modern culture, we're privileging that way of knowing at the same time. Um, because of all the, the gifts that come from it, through the measuring, the quantifying, the evaluating. But we privilege, we moved at the same time away from many other kinds of knowing. Us modern people. We moved away from body kinds of knowing, heart kinds of knowing, even emotional kinds of knowing. Many, th many, much more we could all say about that. They, they look like there's a kind of trajectory away from moral kinds of knowing and um, much more to say. But genius comes from the root of the same word as genie. Remember the genie in the lamp? The genie, the spirit, the spirit guide and your genius wasn't you. It wasn't attributed to any selfhood. It was the guiding guardian spirit that's with you from birth, that lets you develop you as an instrument, that lets you become the instrument you are, not the one you think you're supposed to be or the one that looks like her, but this unique, which is different than attributing absolute selfhood, this particular unique instrument is genius. And perhaps part of our humility is to bow to not trying to become another version, another shape. Now there's that Hebrew story where she had an, a modern equivalent of it today with a student on the phone. I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying it, but she was, she was working with her um, immediate experience. And as she was, this just about two hours ago, she was opening into some... She was having a really difficult time for all kinds of individual and kind of collective reasons. And she began to open into perception of earth and support and earth as alive. And she began to open into a sense of loving holding around her. And she started to relax. Her breath deepened. And as she started to relax, um, she noticed an inner critic. She didn't hear it as inner critic. She heard it first as guilt, but I should be doing such and such, you know, responding, acting, yes. But it came as this sort of urgent, anxious kind of responding. As she listened a bit more, she heard it as, what are you making such a fuss about? You're not really suffering. You know, other uh, real, real people who are responding to the world, they, you're, and why anyway, you're, you're not as good as Martin Luther King. <laughs> and once she heard that, you know, because that was what was there, that was implicit, but not fully articulated in that critic attack. It was like she couldn't quite give herself or she stopped unfolding deeper into be beautiful support for many, many reasons. But one of the comparings in the mind that happened was she didn't deserve that. She w anyway wasn't doing that much for the world and only if you're, you know, this high, high standard of response.
which fits to this Hebrew story where there's um, a man, devout man, on his deathbed, and the rabbi comes to visit. <coughs> and the man is trying to die, and well, in the process of dying, but keeps kind of tangling him himself. And the rabbi says, what's wrong? And he says, I'm scared. God's going to judge me. And he said, why will God judge you? He said, God will judge me for not being like Moses. And the rabbi said, no, God will not judge you for not being like Moses, but God may judge you for not being like, let's call him, give me a name, what shall I call him? David, David. let's call him David. David's on his deathbed, God will judge you for not being like David, not for not being like Moses. This instrument this instrument. And that's different than the dogged tightness that I'm going to be like me, right? It's not that. We have the Buddha's teaching. We have the pointing to not self. Part of the training this instrument is to do those practices so that the genius, the genie, the spirit that guides us, that is calling us to take our place can be heard is not claimed as mine so virtuosity genie genius is not self it's not me it's not mine not myself. Everything returned. I'm not trying to shape this instrument. We, as practitioners, aren't shaping it in the way we think it should become. Neither are we just letting it go to <coughs> see what happens. There's an extremely fine skill that we get more skilled at. So we do our scales, we feel our feet touching the earth, we know it. The marriage of knowing, of consciousness, the knowing, the direct knowing, right with our experience, foot touching the earth, I do my scales, I play my notes, I practice mindfulness of body breathing, I learn the chords. I learn the tunes that can be played. I learn the factors of attention, the vichara, vitaka, the piti, the sukha. I learn, I play, I practice with this instrument. Not because those tunes in themselves are a final goal. they let the instrument become more available. Available for what? So I use this metaphor because whatever our motivation for practice, as whether we conceive of it at times for healing ourselves, fine, 
beautiful. You're, so, you're welcome. And that's a big part of our journey. Whether we conceive it as for serving our world, yes. Yes, and maybe both of those together, maybe they're not so separate. Whichever or whatever other way you conceive it, out of love of the mystery, out of desperation for refuge, all welcome, all welcome, all part of the, all part of the study. Whichever way we want to be able to know how to respond to ourself in our difficult mind states, in our lovely mind states, in when we wake up in the morning and wonder, well, here or anywhere else, what's going to get me out of bed this morning? One Zen student asked the Zen master, what was the Buddha doing during her lifetime? And the Zen master replied, an appropriate response, full stop. That's all the Buddha was doing. That's all the Buddha was doing. An appropriate response, consciousness to know with, to know with, to know isn't just knowing this location, right? That's part of it. Again, similarly with our vocabulary, the words self-conscious, self-knowing. It's interesting. Self-sufficient. Any of you have any pride-based identities in being self-sufficient? It's a common one for meditators. Those words, again, similar era, mid-1600s, 1700. Consciousness, it's knowing with. The shizness and the con, knowing with, it's in relationship, knowing with, I'm knowing body as body. There is an instrument and there seems to be the one playing the instrument. There's a knowing with, I'll say more about that. There's a knowing with as we sit with mindfulness as body as body. We're knowing it with. The consciousness doesn't suddenly just sort of isolate itself here. That's a very modern view. It's a useful thing to play with. It's not wrong. We want to know our own locatedness. We don't only want to absorb. We want to know our own locatedness. But do we make that an absolute truth and cut off the totality? What would it be to know with? What is it like for you? To know with. To know with. To know with. To know with. To know with, to know with. <laughs> There's no knowing without a with. So right now, I invite you to know, or just to think about knowing with. You don't have to know what that means. You can take it as a little piece of poetry if it doesn't make sense. You know, what does that mean? How do I practice that? Your body, I suggest your body knows how to know with. 
when your breath arises, when it's taken in to this location, when you're really intimate there, not abstractly looking, but intimate, touching, letting the breath touch you. There's a knowing with. There's a knowing with. There's a mindfulness of body internally and externally. Can you dare to know with? Can you let right now the flesh of your backside? Can you breathe out? Don't wait till later till you start sitting again. Don't postpone knowing with. It only happens right now. The Buddha could respond appropriately because he had utterly relinquished his flesh to the whole. Immediacy, here and now, timeless, to be experienced and known by each one for themselves. Will you, with me, because if we do it together, it makes it more possible. On your out-breath, let the flesh of your buttocks melt and let your attention drop deeper through the perineum, down, down, together with my student this morning who was struggling and needed support beyond the human realm. down into the dark, fertile, rich, intelligent earth. Can you know with? And if the knee-jerk response is that the consciousness, that attention pings back into your shape, fine. It's okay. We can stretch that envelope. We can know our own locatedness. We can be both unique, autonomous, and completely merged and melted. This is a mystery. But this was the Buddha. He knew his own mind. He wasn't pushed around. And yet completely relinquished. Knowing with. <coughs> Just one more thing about this instrument as I see it funny thing about this instrument, it's not like the violin in my office, because the one who appears to play the instrument and do the practice is part of the instrument. Is always playing something whether we like it or not. There's always a tune coming out. 
I remember being really shocked when some of my teachers once said, everyone is always transmitting themselves. Transmission isn't some special guru thing. We're always transmitting. The tune that's being played in this moment is transmitting. Whether we're articulating or not, that's irrelevant. How we're conceiving and perceiving and attending is transmitting its waves into the seen and the unseen realms around us and within us. Remember, there's a lot of unseen realms within us. There's more smallness in here and bigness out there. We're always transmitting everything. Can't help it. God love us, as my mother would say. We make an impact. And virtuosity and the kindness ethics, wisdom of the Buddha, is that that transmission, that tune, that which is played constantly, has got a little bit more in tune with the whole. A lot more in tune with the whole. So sometimes we're playing, it doesn't feel like playing. It's the same tune again and again and again. With practices, it's good that it's the same tune. We want to practice those scales and arpeggios and ways of seeing and practicing with Anicca, Nata, Dukkha and all of that. All of the practices, yes, repeat those. That's skill. Like when I was about 35, my friend saw me swimming. She said, you don't swim properly. I'm going to teach you back from scratch. And it was like, oh, no. It was really hard work to learn to swim again. It was fine. I got across the pool, all right. And she goes, no, you're, one of your back... I could only do breaststroke. One of your back legs kicks really funny, and it's not a very efficient stroke. It's like, oh. She said, I'll teach you if you want. She wasn't forcing it on me. Okay. Okay, so I had to kind of go back to the, uh, you know, it's not even scales, it's like playing the notes again. <laughs> you know, there's like some of the notes of that we come across it in practice, we find the places where we're not developed, right? It, and, and some of us want to just keep swimming along with the bits where I can already do. Sometimes it's really good to go back, even if it's a little humbling, to get me to learn to kick that leg back out in a different way. Do you remember when you're little, if you were at school in England, they, they often, I don't know if they still do, teach kids in primary school how to play the recorder. You know, that it's often plastic, can be wooden, and it's got six holes on the front, one at the back. No, seven, at least, yeah. And a lot of the kids in my school, anyway, they'd go to the one or two lessons, get really excited because you could... Um, do you remember one of the first things? This is the English tune. I don't know if they play it everywhere else. Probably not. Hope not. Um, uh, one of the easiest ones. London's burning. First two notes. Did any of you stop there when you were at school? I remember 40, 43 kids in my class at primary school. 40 of us 
that was it. They were so excited, you could play the instrument. It's like this mystery you could blow, and then kind of walking around the playground, annoying everyone, just going in and in and in and in. Right? We get a little bit of skill. It's like, oh, thank God, that's fun. It can be fun to get a little bit of skill. In practice, you know, in practice, there's a lot more to it. I'll pick this up next time and look a little bit how the um, genius and virtuosity actually looks practically. But think about the metaphor, see if it works for you. Um, sometimes we go back to basics, and that's really, can be really, really good. I go back, even if I've, you know, developed certain things, I see, mm, I'm a little bit weak with my attention there. I notice, yeah, I could really use maybe six days of looking at Vedana, right? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, right? Oh, yeah, it's such, it's like, it's like you're really fine-tuning that piece of the instrument where then when you're, not as an end in itself, but as a skill that then when I'm handling myself in the world and I'm with my brother and he presses that button, I'm going to have more options than the party blower, right? Because, oh, wow, something unpleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Oh, there's the blower. Okay, you can hold the blower, but you can wait a second, my love. It's okay. It feels like a <sighs> unpleasant. Oh, that's really skillful. Unpleasant, the pain in the heart, the I have to respond, somebody has to tell him what's what. I go back. Two days with Vedana. What blessed relief. What a gift from the Buddha. What a brilliance of his virtuosity that he laid out these pieces to learn how to play this instrument for the welfare of the many. And he clearly did. His teaching dispensation has lasted a very, very long time. There's a lot of skill in his response, in his appropriate response. So I leave you with this to contemplate if it's helpful or might be helpful, or laying seeds. Um, and I'll pick it up next time I speak to, 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 to look at our instruments. Thank you for your practice, really. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.